Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. My name's Catherine Carr, and this is season three of Relatively, the podcast all about potentially the longest relationships of your life. Am I coming in clear? Beautiful. I'll be bringing siblings together to talk about the connections they have as adults, as well as what it was like growing up together. Hello. Hello, there you are. Oh, technology. This week I'm talking to Helen Thorne and her big brother, John Thorne. That was a, a moment that my therapist and I went, ah, you know, <laughs> ah, that's it, that's it. But I'll also talk to them separately to get a more private take on the relationship. She went through so much, you know, emotional stuff, but then it has just emerged vital and determined and confident. It's been amazing. And I remember crying about a week before we got married, thinking, I haven't had enough of my brother. And in a new twist, I'll be delving a little further back with the help of our sponsors, Find My Past, the family history experts. I don't know much about Benjamin Derbyshire at all. Do you, Helen? No, I, I knew that he was quite successful, but that's that's it, you know. Oh, that's brilliant. Brothers and sisters are never straightforward. Helen is one half of the comedy duo The Scummy Mummies, alongside her friend and fellow comedian Ellie Gibson. John is also a performer, making his living as a freelance musician. Helen and John are two of the five Thorn children. John is the firstborn and Helen is the second youngest. There's a whopping 14-year age gap between them, meaning they have very different experiences of childhood. We talk about all of that, about mental health, about taking happiness into your own hands and about divorce. But first, Helen started by describing her earliest memory of her much bigger brother. My first memory of my big brother it was when he got his, what you would say is A-levels over here. And he ran down the corridor saying, I got straight A's, I got straight A's. I remember thinking, oh my God, my big brother's so clever. Yeah, well, that that happened. Um <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a lot of distractions. I didn't really have much of a social life. Okay. <laughs> we can't drink here in Australia until you're 18. So it was like halfway through the first year of university that I could actually go and buy any beer or anything like that. So, you know, I, I, I'm pretty smart and I worked hard and, and, and got some good results. What sort of little girl was she? Can you remember? The actual strongest memory I have is of her incredible musical talent. When she was two or three years old, she could get on a piano and play anything that she heard pretty much off by heart. And um, we sort of bring her out at family occasions and she didn't mind the attention then and she still doesn't mind it now. And uh, But I left home when I was 17. So I was living with her only for four years or so. So uh, that's my strongest memory of her. But she was a beautiful, blonde, very bright, young little princess. I mean, you were a baby and he was a teenager so he was probably not interested in you particularly at all but no. <laughs> when I think he was I think I was quite in an inconvenience for both for all of my older siblings I think my sister I came along when my sister was 11 and that's just when you need your mum isn't it and even though my sister I would say is like my best friend now I reckon that was really hard on her because the boys were sort of independent but I think 
for mum to sort of have a baby and then another baby when my sister was a teenager. I think that was really difficult for them, actually, to be honest. Mm. And was there a longing in you, there often is in babies with a big age gap, to catch up, even though you never are going to catch up? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I do feel that my role in the family is... I'm not the peacemaker, but I just want to be everyone's friend. (laughs) I don't have as many spats I think with with siblings or I just want to be loved I think that's why you know I, I'm a people pleaser and and I think that's a bit like my mum my mum's a bit of a diffuser in that my dad's a bit hot-headed and he has much more of a in the words of my mother explosive personality and I think John and I are very calm people. What would you say your role is in the family and um, Helen knows what hers is she thinks but what do you think yours is? Well, she's probably told you that she thinks I'm probably the favourite one. And I probably have the ear of of my parents, I wouldn't say better, but, you know, they would listen to me probably. I'm probably the calmest of the five of us. You're giving me those uh, vibes. So <laughs> I'm giving you that vibe. Am I? Good. <laughs> John is clearly dad's favourite. Okay. Um. <laughs> Back to those straight A's. <laughs> Oh my God, he's very much the firstborn and we do laugh about that. Like John did a concert in my parents' local town recently. He's an amazing pianist. And Dad, I was on the phone to Dad the other day, he said, oh, I couldn't keep my eyes off you, brother. I couldn't keep my eyes off John. It was just amazing. Like his dad is like completely besotted in John and that hasn't changed for however many years. What, Aww. 50, 55 years? I kind of love that. Years. So, yeah. <laughs> My sister and I have often giggled about my dad calling John the boy. Oh, my boy. <laughs> How do the other boys feel about him being the boy? That's oh, what I want to I know. I know, right? I know. And they might listen to this podcast. <laughs> they will listen to this podcast. <laughs> what could you do to wind him up in a heartbeat now? And has it changed from presumably when you were four and he was 18 or whatever? <laughs> I'm hoping. <laughs> what can I do to wind John up? Um, one of the things that makes me laugh about my brother is he's he's very careful with money. <laughs> <laughs> so I could talk about that. Um, one, <laughs> this is the thing that makes me laugh is that John always buys the cheapest glasses possible. And often they've only got one arm. And um, when we were on tour recently, we were at a pub for lunch and he was wearing his one eye, one arm plastic glasses. And I said, Try my glasses, John, which I'd gone to an optician and, you know, done it properly. And he put it on and went, oh, I can see. And I thought, I don't want to hear that if you're fucking driving me around the country in a van. <laughs> I want to know that you can see with your glasses on, John. So, yeah. But there's this, you know, it's an endearing thing when you can wind each other up as well. I'm not normally a winder-upper of people, I've got to say. <laughs> That's not one of, my, one of my aims in life. Um... I mean, she takes, I mean, and you have to be able to take, you know, as much criticism and sort of, you know, that kind of, you know, feedback as possible, I suppose, you know, when you're on stage. So it's pretty hard to wind, it's pretty hard to wind her up. Yeah. It's pretty hard to wind me up too. Well, she said she could wind you up by teasing you for being a bit tight, maybe, or a bit careful with money. (laughs) Oh, that's, that's, (laughs) that's very common knowledge. Um. With your crap glasses and things. And my crap glasses. Yes. I think I have inherited my grandmother's uh, frugal 1930s <laughs> mentality, I have to say, which was passed down very, very carefully to my father. He's <laughs> he's far worse than me when it comes to um, counting the pennies and the pounds. Um, it's not a bad thing. 
My dad was a vicar for the first 10 years of my life. He was a vicar for the first 30 years of his career. Lots of joy, lots of joy in the house. But also my dad was, my dad's quite a stressful person and my mother very calm. So there was always that dynamic. Being a vicar's kid is a hard gig, I think. Yeah, it's it's not easy. And also there's expectations on how you behave and (laughs) what you're like. Hmm. You obviously feel, you know, that you're watched more than other people in the community and there's and there's sort of certain expectations about, you know, your your behaviour and your uh, and it's something you've got to sort of deal with. You're you're meant to show up for church every week and sit in the front row and <laughs> but what I really appreciate about my parents is when we got to about thirteen they said, Well you make the choice whether you come to church or not and none of us did. And <laughs> you know but it's an, it's interesting growing up with that much religion around you. And I still I still really value the sense of community that, you know, a country church had. I love that people came together and sang and appreciating music. I think that's a real fundamental core of our family is our love of music and our love of community and my dad was very much available you know his his job was next door we didn't have much money but I don't think that really mattered we were always going to like caravans or you know a friend lent us a beach house and they're and they're some of their best memories I have and I think that's that's a lovely thing to be instilled as a child all those sort of elements it sounds lovely do you think that you ended up being a people pleaser because you were kind of aware you were a little bit annoying to the older kids? And so in order to ingratiate yourself, you became Sunny Helen? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think coming from a big family, sometimes your roles get quite defined because, you know, you're trying to fit in and trying to find out who you are within that big group of people. Mm. And we're all pretty loud and we're all pretty confident. We were living in the outskirts of Melbourne in Australia. And then when I was four, my parents moved us up to the countryside. Mm. And yeah, my sister went to boarding school and then my um, older brother, Hugh, he also went to boarding school. So all of a sudden I went from a family of five to a family of two. But then the the big kids would occasionally come home. And I just remember following them around the house. You know, <laughs> I just wanted to be next to them the whole time. I loved them. They were so exciting. And then when I, I went down to the big city, if I stayed with my sister as a teenager, she'd take me to the pub. I remember her like gelling my hair and putting me in a denim jacket, putting the collar up. And she's like, you know, just be cool. And I kind of felt cool because I had older brothers and sisters as well. That's good capital in the playground that if you've got an insight into the teen and 20 year old world, I think. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, my sister would give me clothes and I just felt like, whoa, oh, I just thought I was, I was eating a bit. But yeah, I think, I think there was that pull between idolising them and then just wanting them to be my knockabout brother and sister you know there is that thing when there's a big gap at the beginning and everyone says this I'm sure it gets smaller and smaller the older you get so and now and now John works for me (laughs) the tables are turned he'll be thrilled he'll be thrilled but you know I still there is still an element which I of course I completely doe-eyed for my brothers and sisters I don't I don't think those sort of building blocks of siblings change dramatically you're always going to be the little sister Mm. one of the things on this podcast I've sort of learned is everything is with you as central character I'm the you know I'm the protagonist in my own story and then when we get older with our siblings you meet other protagonists who were in the same story with you and they tell you things from the other point of view and it blows your mind 
Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. And John got married when I was 13 and he was 27. And I remember crying about a week before he got married, thinking, I haven't had enough of my brother. And, and oh, God, I, I'm even feeling a bit sad about it now. I thought, oh, no, but he's going to be married and now he's a grown-up. It felt like, oh, that, you know, that opportunity for sibling time had ended which is obviously bullshit but I think you know when you're little you don't really know what getting married means but obviously now now we're like buddies we hang out all the time and we have big long road trips where I drive her van to her gigs it's been fantastic actually because I'm her um experience of growing up you know with with mum and dad is, is very very different to mine and so I'm learning a lot more about you know you know, how hard she had it compared to me. We've spent many hours now driving in the van and hanging out at shows and going for curries afterwards. And, and we've also chatted about our family and, and how we feel about things. So it's been really a lovely opportunity. And he gets paid. <laughs> gets paid to be with his sister. Yeah. I'm curious about your vibe on the tour bus and I'm imagining playlists and um, games to keep you busy when you're bored There's driving no up music, and down the because it's all talk. <laughs> so much talking. I've never put, put, put the radio on, on once, I don't think. Often we're rehearsing or just doing work. Yeah, they've got their laptops out and they're sort of consulting their diaries or oh, Ellie's checking out the guide for the best three-star um, gourmet um, pub <laughs> within um, two hours of the, yes. of the accommodation. And, uh, <laughs> So what did you mean when you said you've been talking now as grown-ups and she's been telling you about how hard she had it after you left home? Well, we have completely different experiences because um, after I went to university, our father very unwisely decided that he wanted to take the family to one of the worst parts of Australia he could find and um, so relocated the family there and that's, you know, poor old Helen then had a a series of very very bad experiences at, at some poor schools and oh, I don't know what the right adjective is but you know not the best part of the world to grow up in as opposed to what I had you know which was uh, you know six years at a, a boys grammar school in Melbourne. When I was talking to John he did say that um, as adults you've talked about your two respective childhoods and you said Helen they were quite different and you you were too polite or too loyal to say what he said, which was when your parents moved away to the middle of nowhere, it was actually really tough for you. Some tough schools and some tough times. Yeah, I had a very difficult childhood in that respect. I was very bullied and I felt very lonely, but I kind of stuck to who I was. Like I was always very musical and out there and I used to write plays for my classes. So all that creativity was still very much part of me or is part of me. When I was 10, Dad became a teacher. He left the church and he was a teacher at the local high school and that was the high school I went to. So that was that was another sort of pressure, again, to be the good girl. And, and if I misbehaved in class, then the teacher could just tell my dad in the staff room, you know. Yeah, that's awful. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it was really crap. Yeah, so when I was 10, I made the decision, unbeknownst to my parents, to change schools. So I rang up another school, a Catholic school, about half an hour away and said, I, I, I'm really sad, I need to change schools. And I did that myself. I had to take happiness into my own hands and I think that was one of the biggest or most sort of important moments in my life I think. Wow and without being too sort of simplistic about it it's something that you've carried on doing and you've done recently you just decided enough's enough. Yeah and I, I do make reference to that in the book because I'm doing sort of like deep psychotherapy was going back to all these moments in my life where I chose happiness and and I think 
that was a, a moment that my therapist and I went, ah, you know, <laughs> ah, that's it, that's it. And when I was writing the book and, and you know, Jane, John's lovely wife, and I were going, yeah, there is something in me that channels that 15-year-old girl that says enough is enough. I've got to make this change. That's something I'm quite proud about myself is that I don't seek or don't blame others for my unhappiness. You know, I, I want to take responsibility for, for how my life is going to go. This season of Relatively is sponsored by Find My Past, the online home of the 1921 census. 1921 was a time of real change for women in Britain. The First World War created new job opportunities and for the first time they could vote. Hidden in the 1921 census, there are thousands of stories of pioneering women like Dorothy Levitt, the first female racing driver, or Adela Breton, the early female archaeologist. What boundaries was your grandmother breaking? Find out at findmypast.co.uk, exclusive home of the 1921 census online. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You've just written a book, Get Divorced, Be Happy. Obviously, yeah. that... You, you've ended up happy at the other end of it, but the process is not all roses. Yeah. What role did John play in kind of supporting you through that time and then with oh, the book coming out and things? It was lovely. Like, when I found out... Oh, God, I'm going to cry. Oh, sorry. When I, when I found out about my husband's affair, the first thing I did, well, it was, it was at night... And the next day I went straight to his house. And, um, yeah, he was there with my sister-in-law. And I can't tell you how important that was because, you know, my family, most of it, are in Australia. And to have have um, have a sibling there when your whole world has fallen apart, it was really amazing. And when my sister... Um, um, marriage collapsed uh, she called me straight away and I was in a taxi and with her within a half an hour and you know I think I'm very lucky sorry Catherine didn't realize I was gonna cry <laughs> that's not what you want from a comedian Jesus <laughs> um she was very um upset as you can imagine I'd been through a similar situation with my first marriage so I could relate and uh you know try and comfort I'm so proud of the way she, um, you know, her life has completely changed and um, uh, she went through so much emotional stuff but then has just emerged vital and determined and confident. It's been amazing. 
yeah gosh you know it was only two years ago so I think that was really important and that was, so if it was the first three weeks when I was a mess you know he came over and and all those sort of things and was so comforting he was very wise and um so yeah I felt very lucky um <laughs> four four out of the five of us have got divorced Catherine <laughs> so <laughs> she was the last man standing <laughs> never say never um. <laughs> do you see that change in her then definitely yeah yeah because she was trying desperately to make the marriage work and to you know make everyone happy and as as that's her, her thing and and so that was such a weight on the shoulders for a while and and then to not have to worry about that anymore all that side of her life anymore allowed her to um gather strength and um and change from other parts you know like um like she ran a, the marathon last year, for Christ's sake. Sorry. I know. Amazing. Yeah. John and Ellie played a song at my book launch, which was all about how much she loved me. And John played the piano when Ellie sang. And I was like, oh, my God, there's my brother and my best friend. Love has been redefined for me. Love has got better because of <laughs> finding out someone didn't love me. If that makes any sense at all. I think if you realise you've been settling for a very thin sort of love, that's a yes. hard thing. But then realising that that means there's a proper love out there somewhere is a another great thing. Yeah, yeah. And someone described the other day about shallow and deep love. And, you know, I, I look back on my marriage and thought, no, that was very shallow. There was no depth to it, unlike the other the other love that I'm surrounded by now. Yeah, but man, I've I've had my ups and downs, gosh. So <laughs> I was um, I had a little three month stint in a mental home. So you know, there's there's all there's, we've all been we've all you know had our had our had our ups and downs in the family. When was that, John? Uh that was 1991, when the when the Gulf War broke out. Yeah, I just finished one of my university courses and. Um, uh, had gone very hard that year, and um, uh, yeah, it was payback time, <laughs> I guess. He had two spells in two sort of months. I think one was three months and one was five months in a psychiatric hospital. And as a young girl, to go and see your brother when he's not very, very well was very, very hard. And I remember being very sad about that. And, you know, I remember him talking to me. He said, oh, I've got a yellow lighter and yellow symbolises this. And he would all look in the sky and there was a sky writer and he's like, seven's the perfect number. And he was talking in all these sort of strange ways and he didn't look like himself. She asked me, Tommy, about her experience of coming visiting visiting me in hospital. But, you know, but she'd be 11, I suppose, or, you know, yeah, it's pretty hard for that for that age to sort of, you know, have much use. Um, that, that sort of leads up to, the, you know, getting married and um, and... Uh, Helen's feelings of uh, abandonment. Abandonment, <laughs> yes. Mental health is spoken about so widely now, but back then, you know, I think it was a big shock for us all. And Mum had had a brother who's now passed away who had schizophrenia and had mental health issues. So I think that was quite confronting for her to see her son unwell. We talked about it recently again because it's been so lovely being on tour with John about what that was like and what it was like for him and it's really lovely to be able to talk about really comfortably like it's not sort of swept under the carpet. So on this podcast one of the things I'm really interested in is how siblings fit into kind of the short family history of their own nuclear family but also interested in how they fit into the longer story of like their relatives from the past and stuff and this season of the podcast is sponsored by Find My Past who published the 1921 census so I have in my hands 
from the researchers at Find My Past, the line for the ancestors of Helen Thorne and John Thorne. So exciting. Mm. I'm like beyond excited. Ooh. And so are the we rest are of the very family. Excited. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm going to read on. it to you like a little story, if that's all right. Not like a long thing. Oh, yes, but... please. Yeah. So they yes, pick out two people. You. There's Benjamin Derbyshire, your great grandfather, and there's Caroline Pearl Rainforth, your maternal grandmother. I don't know much about Benjamin Derbyshire at all. Do you, Helen? No, I, I knew that he was quite successful, but that's that's it, you know. Oh, that's brilliant. So Benjamin Derbyshire, he's a well-known and highly successful solicitor in Western Australia, and he practised law continuously in Perth from 1895 through to his death in 1945. And what's so neat about these records is that you can see all the times that he took ships from Liverpool over to Australia and who he travelled with and what possessions he took with him as well. Um, oh, wow. So I'll, I'll send you those so you can dig into that. Your grandmother, Caroline Pearl Rainforth, um, in 1921 when the census was published, she lived in Little Venice in London. Did you know that? No. So she came, yeah, she came from a family of tailors. And in the records it said these buildings were six stories high and supposed to be decent but small houses for the working class the roofs were flat and were used to lay out clothing to dry and they shared a toilet between two or three flats oh gross (laughs) (laughs) bad enough with three people in my house two children disgusting but anyway (laughs) so you can kind of look and see that what's now an oligarch's flat <laughs> Once wow. had your ancestors' laundry drying flat on the roof. Wow! Shall I? Shall I? Shall I knock on the door? <laughs> yes, we should go around together. So, a cup of tea, please. <laughs> Often we'd go to our grannies in Melbourne, and she was quite an impressive woman. She's one of the first doctors in Australia, women doctors. No. Yeah. So she, she was quite. Um, oh, she was. Oh, she had a presence to her. She was very warm, but very what's the word she just knew she knew her worth after my first year at university I didn't go back to um stay with my mum and dad I actually just stayed with granny so it was just me and granny by ourselves that was very influential on me my frugality comes from there and the, the way I I wash up and the way I uh, prepare meals and 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 that kind of stuff and it was it was a really um it was a really special time in my life to um to be living with her you know, it's nearly 30 years since she died. I mean, she's still a huge um, influence. I, I have dreams about her. Like, she died when I was 15, so obviously I have less time and, and, and didn't have the opportunities that John had to have with her. But I still, I have conversations with her in my dreams and going, you know, there's been times where I've gone, Granny, I've, I'm doing this now. Yeah. I want to do well to impress her. You know, I think there's something like a like a parent. I'm like, I'm doing this now, <laughs> Granny. You know, look, look what I've done. Yeah. Look, look, look. And I once remember sitting at a dinner table and I was, you know, in my teens and I had a bit of a huff and I was like, oh, I hate being a girl. I want to play football. And, you know, and she said, you, my dear, can go and eat your dinner in the car. And I thought, oops, <laughs> <laughs> she was so cross and then I thought yeah how insulting for this little upstart teenage girl going I don't want to be a girl when granny has been like this amazing kind of pioneer of female doctors and then oh here's this little shit <laughs> being a pain thought no that was very polite <laughs> Go and eat your dinner in the car. You know, your brand as the Scummy Mummies is obviously slightly opposite to being the vicar's daughter and, you know, sitting Mm. properly at the table with the first lady doctor of um, Australia in some ways. Do you think there's ever has been an element of John not understanding 
what it is that you do or the way that you live or the sort of brand or the attitude of life that you've chosen to inhabit joyfully and fully. No, I think that's one of the things I really appreciate, John, and the thing that we're really bonded over is that he's been a performer for, you know, nearly 40 years now and he gets the joy of what I do. We actually worked on a TV show together Oh, when was it? 16 years ago, 17 years ago. And he did some of the music for it. And I was um, on the panel. It was an arts and culture programme on the ABC. And that was the first time we worked together. And I thought, oh, this is it. What a joy it is to work with your brother. And I, yeah, I, th- I, I f- fully think he gets what I do. What do you feel like when you see her up on stage making a whole room of people crease up? Oh, super proud. Yeah. And she just gets better and better. You know, she's dynamite. And um, I'm also very proud of how much work she's done and how, and it's paid off and, um, and it's just a great inspiration. When you know that your sibling is proud of you, that's a lovely feeling and, and I don't take that for granted because, <laughs> and I won't say which sibling it was, I remember one of them said, I can do what you do. <laughs> I was like, could you? <laughs> Go on then. <laughs> like to see you try i'm funnier than you i was like i now <laughs> prove it um, <laughs> so i think i think that's something i really appreciate about my brother and and that yeah he gets the absolute joy and i would say addiction to what it's like to be on stage like it's oh it's a heady thing it's a delicious thing to have a whole crowd of people laugh at a joke that you've written all by yourself look mum look <laughs> that's lovely yeah and the very last question, you said it was a musical family, although perhaps not the kind of rock and roll that you got into, John, when you went to university. <laughs> but what song, maybe it's a hymn, I don't know, but what song would transport the two of you back maybe to the first house in Melbourne or somewhere else where you grew up? What bit of music oh, do you I think? I think it might have to be a hymn. What's well, Abba your... was pretty strong in the house. So oh, my God, it? Abba, yeah. that that, And we do Abba in the Scummy Mummy show. We do an Abba parody now. Yeah, Abba's a really good one. I, I saw... I remember seeing mum dancing to Abba in the kitchen quite gleefully and that's a lovely that's a lovely memory and then oh, dad dad being in barbershop quartets for church um, things God the other the other story about mum and dad is that if I was writing a new song when I was 15 or 16 and I had two options I would play them both to mum and whichever one she chose I would choose the other one <laughs> Oh, my no, it God. worked, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> thank you to Helen and to John, and thank you too for listening. That's awesome. Oh, thank you, Catherine. <laughs> this has been such a joy. Oh, thank you. I'd like to say thank you to our sponsors, Find My Past, for digging into their extraordinary records and uncovering the surprising gems in the Thorn family history that you heard today. Find My Past is the only place online where you can access the 1921 census. So if you want to start your family tree or add colour to what you already know, then findmypast.co.uk is the place to do it. Thank you to Tanita Tickerham for letting us use her amazing song. This is a pocket production and sound design is by Nick Carter at mixsonics.com. Next week, I'm talking to the brothers Nicholas and Christopher Frailing. We talk about being late developers, having a rally-driving mother, and the cruelty of 1950s boarding school. There's a good tradition of love and hate Staying by the fireside There's a good 
tradition of love and hate Stand by the fireside and the rain may fall Your father's calling you You still feel safe inside Only your mom's too proud Your brother's ignoring you You still feel safe inside oh, Was it solo? Was it yesterday? Was it true for you? Cause while all the rest have taken time Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm hmm. 